said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Jeff Yulden. This morning I want to talk to you on the subject of the sanctuary. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago now, we started the subject of the sanctuary. It's very, very important that we understand what we're going to talk about uh, today because as I go through I'm going to explain how there's a difference between Adventism's understanding of the gospel and most evangelical Christians. And the reason we are different is because we have studied the sanctuary and the sanctuary gives us a very, very clear emphasis. And I want to share that with you this morning. Would you open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7? And if this verse wasn't in the Bible, I would suggest that you would never have guessed that this truth is truth. You would, if I had tried to convince you of what this verse says without it being in the Bible, you would never have believed it because this is what it says. War broke out in heaven. Now that's the very antithesis of what we would think about heaven. Heaven is nothing to do with war. It's peace and harmony. But the Bible says that the first war that was ever fought in the universe was fought in heaven and that Michael and his angels fought and then it goes on to say in verse uh, 8 thankfully they did not prevail and uh, they were cast out of heaven verse uh, 9 and verse 10 says then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Now what this verse is saying is that this war broke out in heaven but the Bible then goes on to say the next step was that it continued here on this earth and this earth became the centre part of the devil's accusations and it's if you go back to the book of Job you will remember in Job chapter 1 in the middle of the Bible find Job Job chapter 1 tells us there what actually happened. And it gives us the clearest picture that we have of the great controversy. Job chapter 1 and verse 6 where it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth. And from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, Job has a reason why he's serving you. Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. 
And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. So here we find a discussion because Satan comes down to this earth and the controversy that began in heaven, the war that began in heaven, now comes down to this earth. And we find that Job is an illustration of the whole war that started in heaven but continues on this earth. And so the scene shifts quickly to the earth. And we find that that which began in heaven now comes to earth. And so the conflict which began in another part of the universe now centres around the earth. Now, what we're going to suggest to you this morning is that the sanctuary helps us to understand the controversy that has shifted down onto this earth. There is nothing else in the Bible that is more calculated to help us understand the great controversy and all that's involved but the sanctuary. Now, the sanctuary consists of two sections, you will remember. Um, The first is the sacrifice of the animal. That was the first big part of the sanctuary when the animal was slain. The second part of the sanctuary consists of the application of the blood into the sanctuary, one way or another. It varied depending upon the sin that had been committed and the person who committed the sin. And so uh, we find that the service, as I said, didn't end with the animal sacrifice. It began with that. And who does this sacrifice represent? When the lamb was slain uh, in the sanctuary, who does that represent? Jesus, doesn't it? I don't think there would be anybody that would dispute that. And the point that uh, is important for us to, to understand at this stage is that the death of Jesus or the sacrifice of the lamb in the sanctuary began the sanctuary's work. It didn't end it. It began it. That's where the whole ritual of the sanctuary uh, began. And one of the burdens of the book of Hebrews is to tell us what Jesus is doing in heaven today because the blood that was sacrificed at the altar of, of uh, burnt offering at the beginning of the sanctuary, that um, blood was then applied into the sanctuary. It was taken by the priest into the sanctuary and the, the blood recorded confessed sins into the sanctuary. It didn't record unconfessed sins, did it? Is that right? It only recorded confessed sins. They're the only sins that went into the sanctuary were confessed sins. Now, just come over to Hebrews and we'll read some texts that um, will be, I think, familiar to most of us. Uh, But Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. It is the misunderstanding of what we're talking about this morning that has led to Christendom's tragic mistake. Because Christendom in general centres on what Jesus did on the cross. But the Bible says there is more to the plan of salvation than just Jesus' death on the cross. Vital and foundational and important as the death of Jesus 
was and is, continues to be, but there is something that is just as important as his death on the cross. And most Christians do not understand that, and even some Adventists don't. And some of the controversy that we've had in the church in the last 30 years revolves around a misunderstanding of this. So that's why I want to talk to you about it. Hebrews 7 and verse 25 says, Therefore he, Christ, of course, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. What's that referring to? Yes, it is. Um, when it says he's able to save to the uttermost, that's a reference to Jesus' death on the cross, right? But Mildred is right when she says intercession because the last part of this verse makes that very clear. Those who come to God through him since he always lives to what? Make intercession for them. So there's these two parts of the sanctuary service. There is the death of Jesus and then there is the intercession of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. And you cannot be saved without both. It's not one or the other, it's both. Let me read you chapter 8 now, the, the next chapter and verse 1. It says, now this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who was seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So Paul is making it very clear here that today the work of Jesus is ministering, interceding in the heavenly sanctuary. That's his work today. Hebrews 9 and verse 11. It says, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. In other words, the, the, the sanctuary on this earth was made of man's creation. But he's ministering in a sanctuary that man had nothing to do with, not of man's creation. And then verse 24 of the same chapter, it says, chapter 9 verse 24 for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands which are copies of the true that is the earthly was a copy of the true but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us now the question I would ask what do these verses mean if it all finished at the cross if everything finished at the cross like Christendom teaches us and some apostate Adventists have taught us that it all finished at the cross, then what are these verses all about? What's the purpose of the book of Hebrews and many, many other references in the Bible? Obviously, he's doing something in heaven today, in the sanctuary in heaven, that was not accomplished when Jesus died on the cross. Does that make sense? That's very important that Jesus is doing something that wasn't accomplished when he died on the cross. There are two aspects to the work of Jesus, his death on the cross and his ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. And so 
The same was true of the earthly sanctuary. There was first the lamb that was slain, and then the blood was administered by the priest into the sanctuary, representing the two aspects of Christ's work, his death and his uh, ministry. And if we don't understand those two parts, then we are perverting the full understanding of uh, the gospel story. Come back to Ephesians, the third chapter, and here's a verse that um, is very, very interesting in understanding the great controversy. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10 it says, To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by whom? The church, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Who's the principalities and powers in the heavenly places? Who's that? Yeah, the rest of the universe. Right? So let's read this verse because this is important that we understand what this verse is saying. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God, that is the the way God was working, the wisdom of God, this is not the wisdom of man, this is the wisdom of God, might be made known by the church. So God is going to work through the church to, to help the principalities and powers in the universe understand the manifold wisdom of God. Then it says in verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, when was this plan conceived to use the church to to be to make known to the rest of the universe the manifold wisdom of God? When was that thought conceived? According to verse 11. Let's read it again. According to the eternal purpose, what's the eternal purpose? What does that mean? That means right, right back from the beginning, before the world began. God had conceived that he was going to use the church because... As Mildred pointed out in our lesson this morning, God knew the end from the beginning and he knew that while he would create Adam and Eve perfect, nevertheless they would fail and he had a plan and that plan was conceived right from the very beginning of saving man. And he was going to use the church that you and me to make that knowledge known to the rest of the universe. In other words, here we have um, an understanding of the great controversy. But how can the church be used? All right, just go back to chapter 2 of Ephesians, chapter 2, and this time verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. So why were you created? Why were you brought into the church? To do God's works. We were created for good works. Now, I want to say this, that that, if there's anything that's got some bad marks, 
even in the Adventist church of recent years, it is good works or works because people immediately think about works trying to earn your way to heaven. Now, the Bible never teaches that, and I hope no one here would even begin to think that way because the Bible doesn't teach that. But nevertheless, the Bible says that we were created for good works. Why? Well, notice the rest of the verse. Which God prepared beforehand, that is, way before you were born, way back in eternity, God prepared this that we should walk in them. So God planned from the beginning to use the church to reveal the wisdom of God to the universe. That was the first thing we read. The second is that he planned for us to use good works in order to manifold the wisdom of God to the universe. He was going to use the church. All right. Come back to Isaiah and I'll read you some more on this point. This is Isaiah in the middle of the Bible, chapter 43. And here's a wonderful verse, chapter 43 and verse 7. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7, where Isaiah says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for what? Why were you created and why was I created for? God's glory. I have formed him, yes, I have made him. In other words, we were made to glorify God. And secondly, we were made for good works. Two vital areas, made to glorify God and also for good works. Those things are very, very important. Now, you know the verse in Matthew chapter 5, uh, we won't turn it up unless you want to, Matthew 5.16, which says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your what? Good works, good works and what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. See, one of the reasons God gave us the health message is so that we would be bring glory and honour to God. If you're sickly, then that's not bringing a lot of glory to God. But if we enjoy good health and if we follow the health principles, then folk often want to ask, why are you so healthy? Why don't you have this or that or the other thing? And it gives us an opportunity to talk about God and how the message that God has given to us to, for, for healthful living. That's why healthful living is such an important part of the gospel. We don't get to heaven by living a, a life of health, but it brings glory to God. And that was one of the purposes that God created you and he created me. John chapter 15, let's have a look at this verse. This says something very similar, but this is not as well known as the text in Matthew. This is John 15 and verse 8. Matthew 15, uh, John, sorry, John chapter 15, verse 8 which says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear what? Much fruit. So you will be my disciples. So here again, we are the, the emphasis on glorifying God 
And we do that by bearing much fruit. Let me read you a statement from Desire of Ages. We'll put that up on the screen. Look, it says, The honour of God, the honour of Christ, is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. So why is the developing our characters, it is there to bring glory and honour to God. Of course, the character of God's people is not the only thing affecting the honour of God. The most important thing that brings honour and glory to God is Jesus' death on the cross. No question about that. But God also says that we bring honour and glory to him by bearing fruit in our life, by, uh, by obeying what he has asked us to do. You see, the salvation of man is our big concern, isn't it? As far as um, human beings are concerned, the most important thing about Jesus' death on the cross is your salvation and mine. Don't we think that way? Yes, we do. But an actual fact as far as God is concerned and the universe, that is not the most important thing. The most important thing is that God's character will be vindicated before the universe. And I think it's wonderful that in vindicating his character that he can also save us. Because the very issue in the great controversy, as we notice with, with uh, the story of Job, is that Satan is around accusing God. He accused God over Job. He said, you made a hedge about him. That's why he serves you. He's not serving you because he loves you. He's serving you because you've made him prosperous. Anyone will serve you if you give him enough money. That's really what he was saying. And God said, all right, Satan, I'll prove to you that that's not true. And the, the story of the book of Job is an illustration of uh, God having Job on show. He's uh, testing Job. Job knew nothing about this great controversy that was going on between Satan and, and Christ. But he was faithful to God. And as a result of that, he brought honour and glory to God. And and and. Uh, squashed the devil's accusations that he was unfair. He was not just and he didn't deserve the uh, worship of his creatures. They, these are the issues in the great controversy. Now, it's not the only thing, but it is part of the plan. And if I could put an illustration on the screen now, you'll notice that the death of Jesus and his resurrection is the centre hub of the wheel. One of the spokes is the fact that God wants us to bring him glory and honour by our good works and by our faithfulness to him, like Job in the, in the Old Testament. And we, of course, must remind ourselves continually that everything that we do is done by the power of Christ in our own hearts and our lives. Without me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. But on the other hand, Philippians says... With Christ, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So anything that we do, any, any works that we perform are not our own works. They're the works that Christ 
is performing through us that he wants to uh, ask to allow him to do so he can bring honour and glory to himself. Now, come over to Revelation 14, which is the basis of what we are as Seventh-day Adventists. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6. And once again, you know this verse, but it's now interesting to underline this point in relationship to the great controversy. This is Revelation 14 verse 6. Then I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and what? Give glory to him. So once again, the the very essence of the gospel here, the everlasting gospel, that's what the three angels are all about. Only it's given the emphasis of the three angels is giving it in the context of the last days. And it's the everlasting gospel, the gospel that's always been true. It's not some new idea that Seventh-day Adventists have invented or anybody else. It's the everlasting gospel. And part of that gospel, it says, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And then it climaxes in verse 12 when it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Can you see the emphasis why God is saying that God's faithful people are going to be commandment keepers? Because once again, he wants us to bring honor and glory to him in faithful obedience. Not in order to earn our salvation, like so many Christians think as soon as you talk about the commandments, but simply because we want to bring honor and glory to God. That's the whole purpose why God created us to bring honour and glory to him. And he's given us uh, a wonderful message to help us to understand that. And as we go back into explaining the sanctuary and we have a look again at uh, that diagram, we find that in the first apartment there were a number, three in fact, furniture. What were they? Let's have a look at them on the screen. What was the first one? The candlesticks. What does that represent? Yes, the light. Yes, the light uh, does. And Jesus, the light of the world. Yes. Then the tables of showbread, which were on the other side of the sanctuary. What does that represent? Jesus as the bread of life. We, as we feast on him, uh, he changes us from the inside out, not from the outside in, the inside out. And then there was the altar of incense, which represents the prayers of God's people that are continually ascending to heaven. That's sweet incense that reminded um, everybody of the, uh, of the intercession of Jesus. And so in the ritual of the sanctuary, day by day by day by day, that's why in Daniel it's called the daily, because the priest would go into the sanctuary every day and he would take the blood 
or and and that blood would be sprinkled before that veil. See the veil there that uh, blotted out the most holy place from the vision of the priest in the holy place. Normally, you wouldn't be able to see what we are seeing in the in the picture. Um, as the priest entered, he would only see up to the veil, and. Uh, Day by day throughout the whole year, the blood was sprinkled, taking the confessed sins into the sanctuary. And then once a year, those sins were removed. Remember, the confessed sins were removed on the Day of Atonement. And that's another subject that we need to talk about sometime. And so in the sanctuary service, a complete atonement was not made when the animal died. Now this is very important. Let me say that again. A complete atonement was not made when the, when the animal died. Now most of our fellow Christians will tell us that that's when the atonement was made. That is not true. Because the atonement was made when the priest applied the blood. Let me now prove that to you from the Bible. Come over to Leviticus or back to Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4. Now I know sometimes this may seem a little involved, but it's very, very important that we do understand this and we must talk more on the sanctuary because it helps us to understand. It's the sanctuary that gives us a kindergarten, it gives us an illustration, a physical illustration of what's going on in heaven. This is Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 34. Chapter 4 and verse 34. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering. That's the one on the outside of the sanctuary where the animal was slain, and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all its fat as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. Then the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for his sin that he has committed, and it shall be... Forgiven him. So when was the person forgiven? When the sacrifice died or when the blood was applied? Yeah, when the blood was applied. So if Jesus only died on the cross, that is not going to save us. Because his blood now needs to be applied on your behalf and on mine. He's interceding for us today. And uh, it is the sanctuary that's helped us to understand that. If it wasn't for the sanctuary, probably we would never have understood the completeness of, the of what Jesus is doing. It's not just his death on the cross. Vital is important. And I don't want in any shape or form to minimize that which was accomplished at the cross because that would be a very, very unforgivable thing. Because what Jesus did on the cross is just beyond our imagination. 
But there's more to the plan of salvation than his death only. The same as in the sanctuary service, when the animal died, that didn't complete the work of the sanctuary. It began it. And the same when Jesus died on the cross, what he did then began his work of uh, salvation. And if we go back to Hebrews chapter 7, uh, Hebrews chapter 7 again, toward the back of the Bible in verse 25. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, which says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So that verse makes it very clear that I'm not saved except by the intercession of a priest. Every person who is saved has to be saved by the intercession of a priest. Nobody will get to heaven without the intercession of a priest. I often advertise in um, public evangelism when I'm preaching on the sanctuary, does the church need a priest today? That's the, the title. Does the church need a priest today? What would you say? That's right. If we've come from a Catholic background, the answer generally is no. Because we associate the word priest with the Catholic Church. But the Bible says none of us can be saved without a priest, but it's not an earthly priest, it's a heavenly one. Jesus. And nobody will be saved without his uh, intercession. And, and it's a wonderful thing that in this verse, the, the two things are put together, his death and his intercession. We, the two are combined and we must in our thinking always understand that the plan of salvation is not only his death on the cross, but also his intercession. And I'm sorry to say that there are some Adventists and Adventist preachers who will only preach half the gospel and they'll emphasize the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. And once again, I don't want to be misunderstood in saying this, but there's more to the story of salvation than the cross only. We must understand the sanctuary and understand the work that Jesus is doing in the heavenly sanctuary today because that makes the story complete. And so Seventh-day Adventists believe that when Jesus died on the cross, a complete sacrifice was made for our sins and nothing needs to be added to it. Nothing ever will be added to it. Because, but, if we mean by the atonement that the full reconciliation and that the final restitution of everything then that was not finished at the cross. Is that right? Let me just say that again. If we mean when we say that the atonement is complete, if we mean in saying that, that the full reconciliation between God and man and the final restitution of the sin problem, obviously that wasn't accomplished at the cross. Did Jesus, when he died on the cross, accomplish everything in the great controversy? No, he didn't. He began it then. But it wasn't 
fully completed because as we read in Ephesians, God is going to use the church in order to make known to the universe the manifold wisdom of God that hadn't been fully explained at the cross. Let me read you a statement now from the Spirit of Prophecy to make sure that you don't think I'm making this up because this is what she says. And the great controversy that we heard the story about this morning, which was very interesting. She says, The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above, what's the next three words? Is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. What's that mean so far, what we've read? Let's put it in our own language. What, what does that mean? Exactly. Equal importance. His death on the cross and his work in the heavenly sanctuary is of equal importance. And so you can see with those who only want to talk about the cross, the cross, the cross, they are presenting a false gospel. And the reason evangelical Christians today present that is because in the Reformation, that's all they really understood. They didn't understand the fullness of the sanctuary that hadn't been discovered yet. But it's as we began to study the sanctuary and God gave to us as a church an understanding of the sanctuary, which helps us to understand that the work that Jesus is doing today in the heavenly sanctuary is just as important as his death on the cross. By his death, he began that work which after his resurrection, he ascended to complete in heaven. You know, I, I marvel at the simplicity of Ellen White's writings. She just makes it so simple and so clear. How could you go wrong when you read a statement like that? Just as important. I want to read you one other verse that's interesting. Come out back to Exodus uh, 25. Genesis, Exodus, chapter 25. And here's something that... Um, We'll have a look at the sanctuary again, uh, diagram, particularly the most holy place. Now, this is Exodus chapter 25 and verse 18. This is what it says. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Where was the mercy seat? We got a diagram, Greg, of... Of the holy place, the, the, the most holy place. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end. See them there. The artist has drawn it there for us. These two cherubim. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat, just as the diagram has it there, with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. Now, what does that represent? Well, let me read you Great Controversy. 
She makes it very, very uh, clear here in the, uh, in the statement. Here it is. The next one, I think, Greg. Yeah. The cherubim of the earthly sanctuary looking reverently down upon the mercy seat represent the interest with which the heavenly host contemplate the work of redemption. So let's just pause there. What's she saying? The two cherubim with their hands, wings raised, looking down at the mercy seat, what does that represent? The interest that the heavenly beings, unfallen worlds and the angels have in the story of the great controversy. That, that's what it represents. This is the mystery of mercy into which angels desire to look, that God can be just while he justifies the repenting sinner and renews his intercourse with the fallen race. So there it is. That's what it represents. You've seen those pictures. Now you understand what it's uh, all about. And it's interesting to note that God placed the cherubims not at the altar where the sacrifice was made, did he? He placed it in the most holy place where the judgment was to take place because it is a result of the judgment that every, answer, every question is going to be answered in the universe. That's why we read in Revelation chapter 15. Just come over quickly. Revelation 15. And you'll notice here a verse that you have read many times before but may not have picked the significance of what the angels are saying here. Look at Revelation 15. This is the, the seven last plagues. The prelude, you know, the, 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 write bef- the writing just before the seven last plagues are poured out in chapter 16. What does it say? Verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvellous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, a servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvellous. Now notice what they say. Great and marvellous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. Why is that important? What's been the basis of the great controversy? Satan said, God, you're not just, you're not fair. And so the very angels, just before the plagues are poured out, are are singing and saying, Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. What's the word manifested mean? Yeah, revealed. In other words, as a result of the judgment, God is being praised because now the universe sees that God has acted fairly and justly. 
and that he's a God worthy of our praise. That's the whole purpose. That's, and it's interesting that this is what the angels and the beings and the unfallen world are saying just before the plagues are poured out. One last verse, chapter 16 and verse 7 says, And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. God is being praised because they've seen the whole story now. None of the angels would ever be deceived by the devil again because they have seen the whole story outlined over the last 6,000 years. And, And now at the end, just before Jesus returns and the plagues are poured out, God is being praised because he's just and true. And I mean, if you were an unfallen world, a member of an unfallen world and you were perfect and you heard about these people like David who was a murderer and adulterer and the woman taken in adultery and all the other terrible things that people have done over the years and you heard that they were coming to live up and visit you. It's a bit like if you had COVID and and you're working uh, and and you find that there's a new person come into the office into your workspace and um, they've had COVID. Well, probably they wouldn't be allowed to come if they'd got it, but they've got over it. What would be going through your mind if you especially had to sit next to them? What would be going through your mind? Are they fully over it? Maybe they'll still give it to me. Get the idea? Well, that's going to be the question that all the other beings of the universe are going to ask. These people who have been involved with all these terrible things over the years, are they safe for us? Are we going to catch what they had? And as a result of the judgment, God is able to assure them that their lives have been changed by grace and that they have lived a life in harmony with God's plan and purpose. That's why it's so important that we not only recognise Jesus' death on the cross, but also his intercession today in the heavenly sanctuary. May God help us to understand this important truth. Let's just bow our heads for a moment in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus, and I thank you that you um, have provided not only your death on the cross, but today you are interceding on our behalf that we can come to you no matter what time of the day or night and that we can call upon you to help us. Thank you, Lord, for a God like that. And Lord, one day we want to sing the same song that the angels are singing, just and true are your ways. Please keep us faithful now, I pray for Christ's sake. Amen. This message was made available by the Stanmore Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit stanmoresdachurch.net.
3 ABN's album, Pillars of Our Faith, Volume 1. This is In the Sanctuary. We have a high priest up in heaven. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. He's our defender before the Father. In a temple made by God, not man Behind the veil, in a place most holy Hallelujah, oh hallelujah Investigating, he clears the
to Tip Lady, who loves to help make your life more simple. Do you ever feel absolutely overwhelmed? Like everything depends on you, that you're absolutely necessary to the success of everything, that you're completely and utterly indispensable. Then these tips are for you. They've served me really well over the last few years. Are you ready for tip number one? This is for you. Even when you're feeling completely overwhelmed, here it is. You might wonder about this one, but have a think. If it's to be, it's up to me. What? When I already feel overwhelmed? And the next part of this tip is, if not me, who? And if not now, when? Oh, that's a big tip. Let me read it again. If it's to be, it's up to me. If not me, who? And if not now, when? Yes, indeed, if it's to be, it's up to me. So how on earth is this going to help with the overwhelmed feeling? Well, if it's really up to me, then why don't I just get in and do it? Do the last thing that piled on top of my load and threatened to make me cave into that overwhelmed feeling. Just do it. I've discovered that if I want to get rid of the feeling of overwhelm, I just have to get in and do it. And the feeling of accomplishment will replace my negative feelings. Are you ready for tip number two? Here it is. Three words. Do it now. What? How on earth can that stop me feeling overwhelmed? Well, because taking action replaces that overwhelmed feeling with accomplishment. Like a little story? Here it is. A few days after mum's funeral, Dad had already gone to rest a few years before. I was standing in their home, feeling completely overwhelmed and alone. There were decisions to make every way I turned and it just seemed too hard. Even my husband wasn't there. Suddenly, a message alert rang on my phone. It was a message sent by a very young grandson at the time who was doing what little kids do. He was fiddling with his mum's phone. And he'd come across this poem recited by my dad in his last year. I'd love to let you hear it. I actually have a recording of it, but I'm just going to recite it. This is what was on the message when I picked up my phone that day. And it was in my very own dad's voice. Here's what he said. If you have a job to do, do it now. If you're sure the job's your own, just tackle it alone. Don't hem and whore and groan, but do it now. 
I'm sure you're going to understand how at that very moment that was a poem with a message that I really, really needed to hear. And so astonishing that I should hear it in Dad's voice just at that time, while standing in their dining room feeling totally overwhelmed. After hearing that poem recited to me by Dad, I did just what he told me to do, and I started tackling the job. So what is tip number one? If it's to be, it's up to me. If not me, who? If not now, when? And tip number two, do it now. I have found a blessing in Psalm 61 too whenever I feel overwhelmed. This is what it says. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And I've often loved to think about what it would be to be led to that rock. What is the rock like? Well, when I'm in the shadow of that rock, when I practice my two tips, problems simplify and overwhelm simply evaporates. Why? Because 1 Peter 5, 7 says, He careth for you. And that's so true, I've proven it. Do you think that God had his hand on the little fiddling hand of one young grandson that day? I do. I had encouragement that day from both my dad and my heavenly father. So what is tip number one again? If it's to be, it's up to me. If not me, who? If not now, when? And tip number two, do it now. These tips are simple, but never guaranteed to be easy. But if you put them into practice, your life will become more simple and overwhelm will not strangle you again. Guaranteed. That's it from the two-tip lady today who loves to help make your life more simple. It's been a pleasure bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio.